17 uh, verse 16 he's he's waiting in Athens for Timothy and Silas and this is what the scriptures record about that event it says now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens his spirit was provoked with within him as he saw that the city was full of idols it says his spirit was provoked down in 22 it says so Paul standing in the midst of Arapagus said men of Athens I perceive that in every way you are very religious 
For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So this morning, as that, I didn't even know that I was going to read that. The Lord's just awesome. We worship the living, the one true and living God this morning. We're not sitting in front of a statue this morning. We're worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ together. Let's continue to do that. Give love. 
Bibles and go to Second Peter. Second Peter. We're in the second chapter. You have uh, all heard the phrase, they're getting away with it. 
Or you may have even said that yourself, right? And looked at someone and said, they're just getting away with... Um, you've even maybe heard the phrase, they're getting away with murder, right? But here's the reality of it. They're not getting away with anything, right? They're not getting away with anything. Uh, no one is getting away with anything. Uh, none of us. Believer or unbeliever, we're all going to give an account to the Lord. Every single one of us. Whether you're in Christ or you don't belong to Christ, every single person that's ever lived is going to stand before the judge. That is the truth. The Bible tells us that. Every single person that's ever lived will stand before the judge. You ever thought about that? That you will give an account for your life. If you don't belong to the Lord, you will be at the great white throne judgment. If you live this life and you reject Jesus Christ, you will stand before the Lord at the great white throne judgment and your doom is sealed and you will forever be away from the presence of the Lord in a place called hell. Now, I've got good news for you. If you belong to the Lord... You won't be at that judgment. You'll be at the, great, at the uh, Bema Seat judgment, which is given to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And that judgment is the judgment for believers, the church. And you will give at that judgment account for what you have done. In fact, Paul elaborates on that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It's interesting that both of those judgments, the basis is works. Right? For the unbeliever, the books will be opened and they will be judged according to the things they've done. And they will stand before the Lord and they will be declared unrighteous. But at the Bema Seat judgment, you and I who are in Christ, we're going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ righteous because of Christ. But we will be judged for our works. What we do, it matters. And so as you come to 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 3 through 10, Peter elaborates on this subject of judgment in the context of false teachers. And um, so that's why I gave it the title, They're Not Getting Away With It, right? Ultimately, they will be judged. In one sense, they already have been judged, and I'll show you that in just a minute if you will allow me to do that. All right, so let's read. Verse 3. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Now, you know, sometimes, have you ever read, like, through a book and you're thinking, man, I wish this guy would have just made, like, talked like we talk. Right? You ever, you ever had that thought, man, I wish they just talked like we Because this, these next two phrases are really kind of weird in one sense. He says, their judgment from long ago is not idle. And then he says, and their destruction is not sleep. All right, so I want to remind you where we've been in this study, all right? Um, and just to this point, that's what I put up here. I don't, think, I don't know if I put that in your notes or not, but to this point, false teachers are present in the church. We learned that from the first three verses. We learned that false teachers enter the church in secret. 
Uh, they come alongside believers. They, you know, they might, we said they have the vocabulary, but not necessarily the dictionary. False teachers bring ruin to the hearers. There's destruction. False teachers destroy. Um, I wonder how many true believers have been destroyed by false teaching who sit at home on Sundays and do nothing because of the influence of false teachers. I've often thought that might be interesting to know. False teachers have a large following and a significant impact, as we see from the first three verses. And then false teachers fabricate their message for personal, for personal gain. We saw that in verse 3, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. You remember the word false meant we get our word plastic from it, right? And so they twist. You know, I brought a bottle like a twist. They, they twist their words. You like that? They twist their words, right, for their advantage. And that's what these false teachers did, and that's what false teachers do today. They crave an audience. They crave people to give them attention, that's really one of the things that marks them. You know, one of the things that marks true biblical teachers is that a lot of times they don't have a lot of people following. Right? You think about the life of Christ and, and his disciples, and you go through the life of Christ, and you see at points in times where it's like, you know, they, they, um, they didn't have a whole, they had a whole lot there. And then at the end of the ministry, how many did they have in the upper room? In Acts chapter 1, it tells us there were 120. Not that many. We come to a point now where we get to the end of verse 3, and the question is, what's in store for these guys? What's in store for these guys that are false teachers? Uh, Peter gives us insight to that, and the first point here is that it's already determined what's in store for them. It's already been determined. Um, he tells us in verse 3, their judgment from long ago is not idle. Um, the word judgment's an interesting word that Peter uses here. And that what makes it interesting is that little suffix. Um, this thing has a pointer, I think. Doesn't have a pointer. I thought it had a pointer. So. Yeah. There it is. <laughs> so, you see that little suffix there? So that little suffix makes that definition come alive of that word because it refers to the result of being judged. In other words, they've already been judged. Who's judged them? The Lord has, all right? In other words, the sentence has already been determined. They're guilty. They're guilty. Um, and they stand in judgment because God says so. Their judgment from long ago is not idle. Wayne Barber says that in a quote. So this refers to the result of being judged. And it's interesting because he says their judgment from long ago is not idle. Um, that word idle means not working. Uh, don't parents encourage those young people when they get older to work, right? So if someone says idle time, right, that's a tool for the devil, right? We know that. And, and listen, Young people, just as a side, this has nothing to do with the message. Work. Nothing wrong with working. When I grew up, we worked, right? Well, in this context of this passage, he's saying this. Their destruction is, uh, excuse me, their um, judgment, right, is not idle. And the word there means not, not working. In other words, it's working. Their judgment is working uh, because the Lord has already declared it to be so. All right? And then he uses... 
the phrase, look in your Bible. We'll make an adjustment here. Look in your Bible. He uses the phrase, end of verse 3, and their destruction is not asleep. The word destruction is a very interesting term. It means to be away from or separate from. Uh, It's a hopeless loss of all that gives worth to existence. So it means to be away from, to be separate from, right? And um, in the end, who are these guys going to be away from and separate from? Answer, their creator, the one who created them. Um, That's the destruction that he's talking about here in verse uh, 3. He says, their destruction is not asleep, all right? In other words, it's very much alive. And it's not only already there, but it will be there for them when they stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. All right? Um, There's an interesting twist to this. Oh, thank you very much. There's an interesting twist to this as it relates to the false teachers. If you go to chapter 3 and verse uh, three and four. Um, I wanted to mention this to you because I think there's a really uh, good point here that needs to be thought through in terms of uh, impending judgment. If you're a person who doesn't believe the Lord Jesus Christ, that he even uh, is the Savior, you reject that, Um, then you may even reject the fact that one day that this whole judgment piece is even going to happen. You're looking at it going, well, I mean, I don't believe, and I just believe when we die, we're just done. That's it, the end. Well, in chapter 3, the Bible tells us that these uh, false teachers, and some argue that, this Peter's still talking about the false teachers, but for the sake of illustration, he says this, verse 3 of chapter 3, Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust. Verse 4 says, and saying, where is the promise of his what? His coming. So, it could be that false teachers really don't even have in mind this whole idea of judgment. Right? But can I get you on board with something? This last week, I was listening to Christian radio, and I do that pretty good bit. And these guys were talking, and sometimes don't you just wish the Christian radio people would just stop talking? Play the songs, don't talk. Please don't go into theology. So these guys are, are, are going on and on, and they're talking about, and this is great to talk about, the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, the peace of God, all those great things. And I was listening to it, and I'm like, Yeah, that's wonderful. And then there's the justice of God. So you have to talk about all of it, right? You have to talk about every bit of it. You can't leave it out. I mean, you know, if if I put out there a big old sign in the front lawn that says, hey, we're spending six weeks on on your judgment. That's the next series. Your judgment. Come see us, right? The place to be packed. But it's coming. It's coming for the false teachers. It's coming for you. And it's coming for me. And I don't know about you, but there's a part of me that looks forward to that because I'm 
going to be in the presence of the Lord, there's another part of me that doesn't look forward to that. Even though I don't stand in condemnation, I'm going to give an account for my life. And so these false teachers are going to give an account. And they're going to stand before the Lord. Um, He gives us three examples. So we've seen, first of all, um, that it's already been determined. And we move next to it's already happened, the idea of judgment. Judgment has already happened. It's nothing new. Um, I think sometimes it's treated like a new subject, right? And, and all that's ever discussed is, well, there's going to come a day of judgment. But judgment has already taken place. In fact, did you know that the Lord disciplines those that he loves, Hebrews tells us? That's judgment, all right? Judgment, if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you remember the example where um, the church at Corinth, right? They were abusing the Lord's table and some were showing up drunk and some were showing up not sharing with other believers. And the Bible says that some of them were dead as a result of not judging the body rightly, right? Some were uh, weak, some were sick. Judgment is a reality of life. Have you ever been in a courtroom? Any of you ever been in a courtroom? I went into a federal courtroom one time to be a, a witness um, for an individual and I was going to testify on behalf of this person and I remember walking in that federal courtroom and just being whoa wow this is different this isn't like walking into my house or walking to any other building or either other place I walked in there and I was like whoa can you imagine what it's going to be like to walk in the presence of the Lord Well, judgment's already taken place, and he's given us, he gives us three examples. I feel, feel like with time, we'll probably just be able to cover a couple of them this morning. And the first example he gives, it just continues to show itself. <laughs> All right, you're going to say, well, we're going to give one example, and then we'll be done with that one. No, what you're going to find is that the first example he gives, it has a life of its own. It keeps going and going and going. So it's going to show up when he talks about example two, and it's even going to show up when he gives us the third example in terms of judgment. So I want you to look with me in verse 4. All right, verse 4. Here's the first example. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Now it's very important for you guys to understand, right? Sometimes I give you all you know, these lessons in Greek, but it is important. Um, you see that little word if, right? When we think about that term, what do we think? If and what? Maybe, right? Well, if this happens, then maybe this will happen. If this happens, maybe this. That's not that word. That word's a first-class condition in the Greek. Now, you don't even have to know about that. You just need to know that translated, it means since. So it's not bringing into question whether this happened or not. It happened. For since God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. So Peter's not bringing into question whether this happened He's actually affirming that it has happened. Uh, Jude is another passage. It's kind of like a sister book when it comes to 2 Peter. And in that particular passage, it refers 
seems to refer to this same event. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. He is kept in eternal bonds under darkness. For what? What does it say? For the judgment of the great day. Well, I need to kind of go through this with you, hopefully help you understand it a little bit. Um, what in the world is he talking about? So Peter, I want to show you what he doesn't do first, what he doesn't do. He doesn't tell us when this event took place. You don't find, if you're just using Second Peter, you don't find him telling us when this event took place. But what you do find is that Peter's saying, it did take place. It has happened. Um, secondly, he doesn't tell us how many angels were involved. We're not told, right? Um, he doesn't tell us a number. Um, and then thirdly, he doesn't tell us the nature of the sin committed. He doesn't tell us what the sin was in Second Peter. And so it just makes you do what? Wow, who are these guys? How many of them were there, right? What was their sin? Um, because in verse 4 it says, he didn't with hold from angels that's the word spare there for if God did not withhold right judgment from angels when they sinned so you have to say well when was all this who are these guys um well let me tell you there's two main views all right just so that you have that in case you're in a conversation I've had many conversations about this particular aspect uh this particular example and um many conversations um, and there's guys on both sides of the aisle that are good theologians. And so um, the first view is that this refers to the fall of angels with Satan and his rebellion against God. That's mentioned in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 and then in Revelation chapter 12. And that's the argument that they use, all right? Um, and so it would refer to the fall of angels with Satan. The... Um, other view is this refers the sin refer or these angels refer to the sin of angels, the sons of God, in Genesis chapter six verses one through four, and that when you see the phrase sons of God in the Old Testament, then it immediately takes you where to the book of Job, where you see that phrase used three or four times, and in that book, um, for those who hold to that view, they translate sons of God as being angels. For those who don't hold that view, they translate sons of God there being men. Um, and we'll get to that in just a moment. That's why I told you this thing just has more lives to it than you can imagine. Um, so those are the two main views as it relates to, um, as it relates to this passage in Second Peter. Um, Richard DeHaan, who uh, was a teacher of the radio Bible class, I thought put it really well in terms of what's going on here specifically in the book of Second Peter as it relates to these two different views. He says, Bible scholars do not agree about the identity of these angels nor the time of their uprising. Um, and guys, I can tell you this, over your lunch today, just go Google it. <laughs> You'll spend all afternoon and all night. Uh, I heard a guy this last week, I tell you this, this, this preacher, he said, um, I spent about 15 to 20 hours preparing for my sermon on Sunday. A week, and I'm like, man, dude, that doesn't even get me started. I mean, there is so much there, right? If you really want to study the word, um, you're going to have to spend a lot of time. 
And even if you do, you're going to run into situations like this where there's not, where you have different arguments. So he says, Bible scholars do not agree about the identity of these angels nor the time of their uprising. Some are convinced that Peter had in mind Satan's initial rebellion against God. This rebellion is described in Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. Both prophets state that he was cast down from heaven, and as Revelation records, a third of them rebelled with him. Um, other scholars, or excuse me, other students of Scripture, however, believe that when Peter referred to the angels that sinned, he had in mind the sons of God mentioned in Genesis 6, which we are going to get to with the next example. Um, those who maintain that these were the angels that sinned insist that the reason they cohabitated with women was to produce a mongrel offspring of unusual uh, power and wickedness. And so they're referring to the Nephilim there in Genesis 6, and we'll get to that too. It says, They say that this was a deliberate attempt by Satan to corrupt the human race and make the birth of the promised Messiah an impossibility. And if you go to Luke's genealogy, you remember that the genealogy is traced back to who? Adam. And who's in that? Seth and who? Noah. Okay, I knew you knew that. Right? And so then his, Dahan's conclusion is this. Whichever you accept, the point is that these wicked beings were swiftly judged by the Lord. And guys, listen, I want to tell you one thing that can happen to you when you're studying things like that where there's like these different views. You remember a few weeks ago I mentioned to you limited atonement and unlimited atonement. Sometimes you can get so caught up in that that you're missing the point of the author. The point of Peter here in 2 Peter 2 is that angels are judged. They were judged, right? That's his point. Um, and so he, he sums that up by saying no one who rebels against the Almighty will escape his wrath. So if you're looking in the context of Second Peter chapter 2, these false teachers who are provocating another message will not escape the wrath of God. They will be judged. Um, I did want to point out what Peter does reveal, however, from verse 4. What does he tell us? He tells us judgment was not withheld from them. Notice verse 4. If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. So judgment was not withheld from them. That's the word spare there. Um, secondly, they were cast into hell, which is really a holding place. And the word here in the Greek is a different term, right, than maybe you are used to seeing. The word is... Oh, my goodness, Dad. I've never been accused of using this thing real well. Um, so the, the Greek word is Tartaru. The place that he's talking about is Tartarus. Now, this describes here, this, and this is very important to know, it describes... A place of darkness and gloom, often thought of and described as dungeon-like. Um, one, one theologian wrote, it's the lowest of low. That's where they are. They are in the lowest part of low. They are confined, as the word tells us here, they are confined to pits of darkness, What do you think the culture's perspective of hell is? Party, right? 
Have you heard the phrase before from people, I'm going to bust hell wide open? Yeah. It's not the party place that people make it. In fact, how does he describe this holding place for these fallen angels? He says they're committed to what? Pits of darkness. Darkness. When you think about hell, we think about the future, we think about darkness. It's not going to be a party. It's a place reserved for judgment. And as we said a while ago, when he talks about these false teachers and he says um, their destruction is not their destruction is not asleep right and that word destruction you think about that being away from and guys that away from in the context that away from is forever there is no get out of jail free card right as people like to think about it in terms of well i'll get another chance um as it relates to these fallen angels the bible tells us that they are committed to pits of darkness, reserved for judgment, one day they will be judged. Just like one day you and I will be judged. Then thirdly there we see Peter tells us they are confined. I was thinking about that, uh, that word confined. Um, how many of you like confinement? You like restriction? How many of you wear your seatbelt? Maybe I should have said, how many of you don't? Right, you get in a vehicle, and when you put that seatbelt on, you are confined. I know at times um, I've bought vehicles, like I, I bought a vehicle a few years ago, it's just the Chevrolet truck, and I remember the first time getting in that baby, and I locked myself in, and I tried to go forward just a little bit, and that just, right, confined. Nowhere to go, right? And for, in terms of a seatbelt, Hey, when we're out driving, it's good to be confined. It's great for that safety. But when you think about that these angels, these fallen angels are confined, and you think about the future of false teachers and the fact they're going to be confined, and you think about the people that, right, aren't saved, they're going to be confined to hell for eternity. I think it's worth considering. I want you to take your Bibles real quick, just as a reminder, and Go with me. I mentioned the passage earlier, but just so that you know it exists, Revelation chapter 20, I want you to see this. In terms of judgment, and in this context, this context is the great white throne judgment. And if you begin in verse uh, 7, it says, And when the thousand years are completed, what are the thousand years? The millennial kingdom, right? Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, Revelation chapter 20, verse 8. To gather them together for the war. What war? What are you going to see? The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Um... A number that John didn't record, right? It's in one sense past finding out there's so many people and this rebellion is so vast. 
The Bible says they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Over. Done. Done. The war. What war? Done. You know, guys, I don't... There's so many wars we could use as an illustration. And and war, I mean, it, it takes lives and it takes time and there's so many components to war. But when you think about the Lord and the way he fights, done. He won't need our help. He's the one doing battle. The Bible says, the fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Look at verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. This next phrase, look at this. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I'm not sure what people think hell's going to be like. But it's not a party. And in this context, he's talking about Satan and the beast, the false prophet. And the Bible says they're going to be tormented day and night forever and ever. And verse 11 says, And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their what? Their deeds. And they're going to find out that what? You know, this is a great proof text that salvation is by grace through faith alone and Christ alone plus nothing. It's not what one does. Can you imagine how many people are going to be in that line and go, hey, I did this and I did that and I did this and I did that. And even people who are churchgoers. They say, I taught this, I put money in the plate, I parked where I needed to park, I didn't use the handicap spot because I wasn't handicapped, right? I did all these things. Doesn't that measure up? It won't. The Bible says, verse 13, the sea gave up the dead which were in it. I've always loved that little phrase. People think, well, how in the world is God going to? And I go, well, have you read creation? Right? If he can take dust and form a man, and he did, and if he can take a rib out of that man, which he did, and form a woman, I believe God can restore those people who've been lost at sea. Don't you? Verse 14. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You know, guys, we live in a culture that doesn't think they need to be saved. That's just the truth. We live in a culture that says, I'm okay. How many people have you had an opportunity to witness to and they've used that exact phrase? I'm okay. I'll be all right. When I stand before the big man, I'll let him know. I mean, I hate to use phrases like that, but that's the way the world talks about it. That's just the truth. There's not this mind of an infinite, holy, righteous God. (laughs) 
And only by the grace of God am I going to stand there before Jesus Christ is righteous. That's it. That's the first example. We'll be coming back to these guys. Second example that he gives in the text is the ungodly who were destroyed in the flood. Back to 2 Peter chapter 2. He says, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved, and we're going to get to Noah. I don't know if we'll get to all of Noah today. Did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So we have the judgment of angels, and we have the judgment of the ancient world. I want you to go back with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. Remember I told you those angels with the view that these are, the angels are sons of God. Again comes up in Genesis chapter 6. The focal point in Genesis 6 is twofold really. It's about the righteousness of God. Well, actually threefold. The righteousness of God, right? The grace of God, because we're going to see that. And the judgment of God, right? That God is righteous, right? But he is gracious. He is gracious, and that's shown here in this text as well. Verse uh, 1 of uh, Genesis chapter 6. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. And so you have here again this picture or this phrase here, sons of God. So there are these angels that are described in Second Peter and in Jude. We'll get to that with the Lot illustration. Or are these describing godly men in the line of Seth? That's the two views there. Some hold to the context and say, that the, what he's discussing in chapters 4 and 5 in terms of the genealogy is he's describing the godly line of Seth. That's the sons of God here. And then the ungodly line of Cain, that's the daughters of, of men. But then, like I told you a few minutes ago, there's some that hold to the fact that these sons of God here are the fallen angels that are described in Second Peter and in Jude uh, verse 6. All right? And so he comes to verse 3 and he says, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh, nevertheless his day shall be 120 years. The Nephilim, or giants, all right, were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men, the mighty men, excuse me, who were of old men of renown. And then verse 5 tells us, look at this. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now I want you to drop down with me to verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. So you read and you look here at the judgment of the Lord that comes on this ungodly people, right? In fact, the Bible describes the people of that day is having uh, people whose thoughts were only evil continually, right? Only evil continually. Um, 
And I thought about a passage in 2 Timothy 3. I wanted to share this with you before we move on. So if you could just flip back. I know it's back to the New Testament. But I was thinking about that phrase, only evil continually. And I got to thinking about the fact that our culture today is pretty evil. Uh, Would we describe our culture as only evil continually? Well, it's pretty evil. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 3, look at how Paul describes the last days. Um, He says, but realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self. Would you say we're there? Yeah. Lovers of money. Yeah. Boastful, yes. Arrogant, yes. Revilers, yes. Disobedient to parents, yes. Ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And that certainly describes our culture today. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Let me ask you a question. What should the church be today? Lovers of God, right? That should should come through our lives as believers, that we are lovers of God. And notice what it says here. Holding to a form of godliness. A form. Not the real thing, a form. All right, not the real thing. Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. And what does Paul say to Timothy? Hang out with these guys. No. Paul says what? Avoid such men as these. You know, guys, I think it's worth mentioning this, that, that we're in the world, but we're not to be what? Of the world. You say, yeah, that, but how are we going to, Witness to believers, we, I mean unbelievers, we can witness to unbelievers, right? Doesn't mean we have to hang out with them 24-7, but we need to witness to them. They need the Lord. Um, so as I thought about this description in Genesis chapter 6, I thought about, my mind went to uh, 2 Timothy, um, the third chapter. Well, what else do we know here about uh, Noah, right? The Bible tells us that The world was in a pitiful condition that the heart of man was only evil continually, that the earth was corrupt, right, in the sight of God, and so there was going to be judgment. We know that the judgment was a flood that he brought upon the world. But what does the Bible tell us about Noah? Because 2 Peter refers, I thought this interesting, that Peter, um, if you go back to 2 Peter chapter 2, that Peter talks about Noah, but he does so in a way that really um, screams grace. All right, grace. Um, notice I have the two, two um, different passages there, one in Genesis, one in Second Peter. But preserved Noah, that's what God did, he preserved Noah, a preacher of right, righteousness, with seven others. And you find that back in the book of Genesis, chapter 6. And then chapter 6, verse 8 of Genesis says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so you have to ask yourself the question, Well, what was Noah like? Because the Bible tells us that the Lord found favor with him. There was grace there. Well, the Bible tells us. We don't have to guess what kind of man Noah was. Who is this man that God preserved? 
Um, first of all, he was a righteous man. Righteous man. Not only was he right before God in terms of his position, but he lived by God's standards. <laughs> and you have a whole example of a, everyone else who wasn't living up to the standards of God. Right? The entire populated world. Right, he was a righteous man. And secondly, we find from Genesis that he was a blameless man. Some translations have perfect. Now, he, I want you to give the wrong idea. I mean, he wasn't a perfect guy, right, in terms of, right, he never sinned. He did. But the Bible tells us, right, that God had grace on him. And so what this is is a comparison to those of his day. My goodness, he was blameless. He was set apart. There wasn't anyone like Noah, Right? Uh, and we know that because of the third description that we're given. He walked with God. He walked with God. So we pause here and ask the applicational question, right? Um, how's that walk with God look in our life? Is it worth discussing, right? Is it worth having a discussion about that particular issue? What does it mean to walk with God? Um, because we define described in the book of Genesis another man whose life was characterized as a man who walked with God. Who was that? Enoch. He walked with God. So I got to think about what does it mean to walk with the Lord? And obviously the idea is a close, intimate fellowship with the Lord. But then my mind was drawn to Ephesians chapter 4 and 5 where Paul talks about the position of walking as a believer. And this is what Paul says in Ephesians chapters 4 and 5 about walking in terms of our relationship with the Lord. He says, walk worthy of the call. Do you know if you're a believer in Christ, you've been set apart, right? And you're, you're his, and we need to walk worthy of that call. There needs to be a balance in our life between our position, right, and our practice. Positionally, once you come to Christ, you're in him forever. But in terms of practice, right, that means that there needs to be a submission to the Spirit of God in our lives in order to walk worthy of the call. The second point that he makes in Ephesians 4 and 5 about walking, he says, don't walk like the pagan. He uses the term Gentiles. Don't walk like the pagan. Don't walk like you once walked. So when I think about walking, you know, that, that Enoch walked with God, that a description here is given about Noah and he walked with God, I'm thinking, what does that mean? It means that we have to give attention to that more than we give attention to Facebook. That's what it means. <laughs> right, this is going to be good. So we give more attention to walking with God than we do to our computers or our phones. I mean, and, and can you imagine, I don't have my phone with me today, but the distraction that that little device is. Man, you can still walk with God and have your phone. But we ought to be thinking about what that looks like. And Paul tells him, he says, don't walk like the pagan. And then the third thing he says is walk in love, right? We're to be different from the world whose definition of love is I love you if. <laughs> the Christian's definition of love is I love you since. Since God loved me, I love you. <laughs> Even enemies. There's another good study for you this afternoon. So walk worthy of the call. Don't walk like the pagan. Walk in love. He says, walk as children of light. But men love what rather than light? Darkness. That's a characteristic of an unbeliever, not a believer. Walk as children of light. And then finally he says, walk circumspectly or wisely. 
right? That's how we're to walk. And, and in the context of that passage, after that, he gets onto these relationships, right? All through that. And so if we're going to walk right before the Lord, we have to be under the influence and control of the Holy Spirit of God. And so we see Noah, he was a righteous man. He was a blameless man. He walked with God. Fourthly, he was preserved by God. Notice what it tells us in verse 5 of Second Peter. He says, And did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah. That word preserved means to keep from perishing, to keep safe. And that's what God did. There was grace in the life of Noah. Um, by the way, as I was thinking about that, I was like, man, Lord, that's what you're doing with us when it comes to future judgment. Because did you know that he's going to take his church out? Did you know that? The Bible talks about the rapture. He's going to take his church out before the judgment on earth, the seven years of tribulation. It's a pattern with the Lord that he preserves his people. It truly is. All right? So he, he was preserved by God. And then fifthly, the Bible tells us here in the book of Second Peter, notice it says, but preserve Noah, a preacher of righteousness. All right. So if I called your name out and said, Sally. Sally is a, right? If I said, Daryl. Daryl is a, right, fill in the blank. Now let's use that with your name and my name. Thad, he is a, you probably have a lot of things to say, right? He's short. He talks a long time on Sunday mornings. Right? There's a lot of things. You could... But you think about all the different descriptions that are given to Noah. But I look at this one and I go, wow, he's a preacher of righteousness in a time of tremendous unrighteousness and was faithful to it. I mean, think about the story of Noah, man. He's building this boat. There hadn't been rain. God's bringing judgment on the world and, and he preserves Noah to build that ark, but not just to build that ark, to preach righteousness. And how many converts did he have? Well, that's right. There were seven others, right? But in terms of the world, zero. Man, I'm not doing that for zero return no way right you know what it doesn't say Noah just packed it in I can't even imagine what it must have been like for Noah being made fun of all the time and all the time and all the time and preaching righteousness and preaching righteousness and preaching righteousness and then he, the ark is built and the rains are there and the floods come from the deep I think about now pastors and teachers who are preaching and it's just going in one ear and out the other. And people can't hear. I'm going to close with this. If you see the word preacher there, in the original it means a herald. Now a herald was one who hung out with the king. Right? He, he was with the king. When the king traveled, he traveled. And at times the herald would speak forth a message and the message was from the king the message wasn't from the herald it was from the king whatever the king said the herald did 
And the herald proclaimed. And I'm like, you know what? That's good stuff. Because a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't make it up. It comes from the king. It comes from the Lord himself. And I want to close with two things. If you go in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians in the 2nd chapter, I just want to read this. This is a great example. Noah did. He was a faithful preacher of righteousness. But there was another one named Paul who was a faithful preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, Paul, in talking to the Corinthian church, he says, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My message and my preaching were not in what persuasive words of wisdom. (laughs) That kind of sounds like false teachers that do that, right? Their own wisdom. Persuasive words of wisdom. But in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on what? But on the power of God. The greatest, this is one of the, another great examples of a man who was committed to the end to preach Jesus Christ, to preach righteousness, to preach, listen, there's just one way to the Father, and that's through Jesus Christ. Guys, I don't know how much you have thought of judgment in your life, and the fact that one day not only are false teachers going to be judged, not only were angels judged and the ancient world judged, but, but you and I are going to be judged. There's a story of a man named W.C. Fields. He was an actor. And it, the story goes like this, that he was on his deathbed. He was in a hospital on his deathbed. And he had a friend come by to visit him. And the friend walks in his room... And W.C. is flipping through the Bible. And so his friend, curious about his action, said to him, W.C., what are you doing? He says, I'm looking for loopholes. Guys, there are no loopholes. We're saved by grace. We live by grace. Thank the Lord, we're going to be judged by grace, but we will be judged. And while we won't be judged to condemnation, praise the Lord if we're in Christ, we will be judged. May the Lord help us to think about that as we live each day, hopefully for his glory and his honor. Let's pray together. Lord, we just want to thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for the examples that you give us in Scripture of this very important doctrine, Lord, that you do judge. And I pray that that it would be on the the forefront of our minds as we live each day it's certainly great motivation (laughs) to know one day lord that we're going to stand before you and while those of us in christ will not stand condemned we will stand before you and give an account of our lives of the things done in the body for your glory as first corinthians three points out lord and and some of that that we do will remain and some will be burned up Lord, I pray you'd help us to focus in on those things that remain. Relationship that we can enjoy with you daily. Sharing the gospel. Growing deeper in in, in your word and in your truth. And and Lord, we live in a challenging time in our culture. Where certainly our days are wicked days. 
And so for us to walk that line, Lord, where we are uh, set apart to you, certainly has to be noticed by others. And, and I pray that it is in our lives. And I pray that you would help us by your spirit every day to live for your glory. We thank you, Lord, for the great reminder this morning. And I pray that as we continue on in the book of Second Peter, that we would recognize, Lord, that, that the dangers are out there. They lurk out there. But Lord, those of us who belong to you, I pray for discernment. Lord, I pray for wisdom beyond our understanding as we face the different challenges that come before us each day. And all these things we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, all right, guys, as we continue to uh, think and focus uh, on our living God, I wanted to read in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 3. Peter writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so our living God, and only from a living God, comes a living hope. And the word says it comes through Jesus Christ. And because of the living hope that you and I have in Christ today, we have peace. We have peace uh, in the midst of difficult relationships, uh, physical ailments, but mainly we have peace with God. Amen? We have peace with God through Jesus Christ. So this next song B is going to do is called I Will Rise. It's about peace in the midst of difficult circumstances. Yeah. 